Hello and welcome to yet another lockdown edition of The Bunker, the politics podcast that stays two metres away from Brexit. I'm Naomi Smith, CEO of Best for Britain, and as we record today, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson remains in intensive care, and naturally we all wish him well for a fast and complete recovery. On today's show, we'll be asking what this alarming development means for the country and the government's fight against corona. Plus, instant starmer, new Shadow Justice Secretary David Lammy joins us to talk about Labour's reboot, does it amount to socialist distancing, and what he learned about reuniting a fractured Britain by writing his new book, Tribes. All that and more in today's Bunker. Before we start, a huge thank you to everyone who tuned in to our Bunker versus Romaniacs live stream last Thursday. Over 900 of you watched our show, which is absolutely amazing. We'll be announcing another one in the future, so follow us on Twitter at Bunker underscore pod to find out the details. On our panel today, noted comedian, writer, former New Labour spin doctor and now editor of the Londoner Diary in the Evening Standard, Aisha Hazarika. Hello, Aisha. How are you? Well, a bit freaked out, to be honest. Um, all right. But yeah, it's been it's been a really... The, the news about the Prime Minister is very, very... Uh, it's very unsettling for everybody. And it just kind of really rams home how serious this thing is. Absolutely. Um, and in terms of, you know, daily life for you, are you praying the government doesn't have to ban our one daily exercise in the park? Yeah, I'm I'm really hoping that it's not going to get any more draconian. And I'm not saying that from a, you know, I don't want to be sort of difficult because I think there's no easy answers on any of this, but it's just so important to people's mental health to be able to get outside. And I'm somebody that quite likes to be glued to the sofa. My sofa has a dip in the middle of it because I'm often, you know, <laughs> have to be surgically removed from it. But I think as well, like if you've got a garden and you've you've got, a bit of space it's easier but if you are cooped up in a wee flat with quite a large family and and no space I think it's actually very unfair on people's mental health to Mm. to say that this is going to be tightened even further because even just the it gives you psychological comfort to just know that you can get out the house once a day and I think if that goes that will affect people even more and making his long-awaited bunker debut all the way from Mykonos, Greece, where this week he talked snails and cheese with Nigella Lawson for the Bunker Daily. It's Alex Andreu. Hello, Alex. (laughs) Welcome to the Bunker. How's it it going over there in our European headquarters? Um, Greece as a whole is doing incredibly well. Um, it's, It's now just over two weeks since we went to total lockdown and we're beginning to see some benefits um, yesterday we had a total of only 20 new cases. Um, my corner of it, however, the little island of Mykonos, is unfortunately the, the epicenter of a cluster of cases because some total dick of a priest decided to do secret Eucharist services with loads of elderly women gathering. And it turns out he had asymptomatic COVID-19 and passed it on to several of them. So there's now a hardening of the lockdown rules. No exercise, Aisha, I'm afraid, Um, including an 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. absolute curfew for 14 days across the island. Goodness me. Well, we're sending our love and best wishes to the little old ladies of Mykonos. They're gratefully received. And as I mentioned, our special guest is the Labour MP for Tottenham and newly promoted Justice Secretary David Lammy. Hello, David. Welcome to the bunker and many congratulations. Thank you. It's great to join you. Um, if you come on this show, you do tend to get a massive promotion um, because we had Lisa Nandy <laughs> on last week and now she's Shadow Foreign Secretary. So honestly, who knows what giddy heights await you after this goes out? <laughs> 
fantastic. It's a great omen. Great. <laughs> um, the situation with um, with our Prime Minister Boris Johnson is, of course, unprecedented uh, in modern times. We we have had some some PMs be laid low for for a couple of days, but nothing as obviously serious as this. And people really are shaken by it. You know, Aisha mentioned that she is. What what should the government and the opposition be doing to reassure people at this time? Well, look, I think it's always important to remember in these circumstances, the vast majority of people in our country look into politics momentarily. Because of the coronavirus, people have got um, their news on, um, they are listening acutely, they are anxious, they are worried, they are frustrated, and they will have watched with shock and horror that the British Prime Minister is now in an intensive care unit. And that would have been the case whoever the British Prime Minister was, whatever the party. And so this is a moment where we absolutely come together and we all hope and pray that Boris comes back to work. And I think the response is not a partisan one of any kind. It's one of compassion and the official opposition uh, led by Keir Starmer has to be as supportive as we can be to assist the government with the purpose of bringing our country out of this. Indeed, and and supporting the government um, is, is sort of slightly trickier to do, I imagine, when so many of them now are laid low. You know, you've got key advisors like Cummings, absent, uh, Matt Hancock reportedly uh, over-promising on testing. How can opposition uh, politicians test and and, and scrutinise the government's efforts during a crisis without undermining confidence in that effort? As you said, it's it's a time that we've got to support them. Um, but, but how do we sort of provide the, the scrutiny that the public actually demands of us Um, without undermining that effort? Hard balance to strike, I'd imagine. I think it helps considerably that the government have reached out to the opposition and said, look, please, you can be briefed on Privy Council terms. And uh, I've spoken to my opposite number. Um, I will be getting a briefing on what is happening in our prisons. As you know, prisons are an area where People are in close proximity, and we do not want thousands of people to die in UK prisons. So um, the ability to get that briefing and to fully understand what ministers know enables you, of course, to ask um, the right questions, um, but to do that in a constructive spirit, recognising that if you are in a war and generals are having to make strategic decisions Um, the moment to challenge them on those decisions is probably not during the war. It is after the war when you make an assessment of what happened. Uh, I mean, the war analogy isn't entirely helpful because, of course, we are not in conflict. This is a a crisis that affects the whole global community and none of us want it. But nevertheless, it's recognising, and I recognise this, Aisha will remember this, you know, when we were in government, you, sometimes you really had to make tough marginal calls. You had uh, probing differences across ministerial teams, and then you presented a united front. And in a sense, the opposition is in that spirit, um, um, questioning in the appropriate places on behalf of the co- government, uh, on behalf of the country. And the sort of questions you're raising at the moment are questions around capacity to test, questions around getting PPE. But it would be my hope that government ministers are raising those questions as well. Thank you. Aisha, you know, you, you sort of led with uh, talking about the shock that, that people are feeling as a consequence of the Prime Minister first being hospitalised on Sunday and then put into intensive care on Monday. Do you think that that shock might actually now be the tipping point for those sections of the public who up until now hadn't really been taking corona seriously? Might we see an end to sort of secret 18th birthday parties and family barbecues? I'm not sure. I think if you're following this very closely and you're already very worried about it, I think this has just amplified um, your fear about it and your anxiety. 
I think there are large sections of society because we do live in a very mixed uh, type of society. We do live in quite a divided society. I think there's a lot of people and it's not that they're bad people. It just doesn't feel like it's very real to them. Yes, they see it on the television Mm -hmm. news, but it maybe hasn't touched their life in a really evident way. And maybe they're not sort of, you know, following every twist and turn and every development in the story. I think for some people, they are cognizant. Of course they are. They're cognizant about the fact that something very big and dramatic is going on. But on a really like emotionally honest level, they just don't believe it. Like when I went to the park the other day, there were just still quite a lot of people, you know, out and about just drinking in the sunshine and things like that. But again, I just think it's it's very hard to know how to kind of change the hearts and minds of, of people like that. I mean, I'm quite against a very, very full-on lockdown, although if, if that is the decision that's taken, you know, we'll get with the programme. But I think for a lot of people, either they don't have, a lot of people genuinely don't have the, the space, but I think a lot of people, like life, a lot of people in this country, we think that everybody is glued to news, politics, current affairs, um, twists and turns in terms of philosophy, psychology, everything that happens on our online world. There's a lot of people who completely don't live in that world. And I think for them, I think they're quite, I think those people are quite hard to reach and young people as well. Like, you know, I was listening to somebody the, the other day, look, if you, if you've got a family and you've got young kids, that is a, that's really tough for you, but at least the kids are we and you can keep them in the house. If you're, let's say a, a single mum you are a key worker, you have to go to work. Let's say you've got kids who are like teenagers. Good luck with trying to just enforce, you know, mm. the, the law to keep your kind of teenagers at home while you're out. It's really hard. Mm. Mm. I mean, of course, the, the people that have, um, uh, you know, accepted that this is an incredibly dangerous um, virus and, and horrendous situation are those, of course, that have lost members of their own family. Um, and, and some of them have begun to say that we're in this situation because of the government's late action um, and that, that Boris Johnson himself set a bad example by uh, boasting about having shaken hands with corona patients. Um, c- you know, can, can we blame them for that anger? But, you know, would, is that anger going to get us anywhere? I, I don't think it is. Look, it, it, it's it's completely right, and and it's the sign of a healthy functioning democracy to question big big decisions about what the government has you know has made. And I think when this is done, um, and we do have the analysis, um, I do think the government's not going to come out of it very well in terms of that the, that critical early point of preparation. But it doesn't really feel like now is the time to do that. I'm seeing quite a lot on Twitter. So I'm seeing a lot of people saying, I wish him well, and I'm sorry for his family and for Carrie Simmons. And I think that's very important, but I am still seeing quite a lot of sniping. And one thing I just wanted to highlight was I'm seeing a lot of people saying, oh, he should have just like down tools earlier in, you know, in time. But, you know, David and I will know this having both of us worked, you know, in government and been in government. These jobs are really, really big decisions. You know, the weight of responsibility lies heavily on 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 anybody who's involved. I was a civil servant at the time, you know, the, the, the pressure. And if you're the prime minister and A, you've wanted the job and you find yourself in the biggest crisis since the Second World War, you it's you will have a natural desire to want to spend every waking hour trying to do your best on this you know you are the most important person in british politics and i i'm not a fan of boris johnson but i do have to believe that he would act in good faith who wouldn't you know for any prime minister of any political stripe you know, you would take this very seriously and you would want, you. he probably doesn't sleep at night, not just because he's ill, but because he is really worried about this. Nobody wants this on their watch. So I do think people have got to try and put aside not just their partisan, but try and use everything just to confirm their own bias and arguments about everything. Mm. Alex, you have been quite critical about about Britain's handling of it so far in comparison uh, to Greece. Uh, you know, the government messages that Britain is handling it as well as could be expected, given how unprecedented this pandemic is. But of course, you know, we still don't have the mass testing that we know we need. Uh, and of course, frontline workers not having the PPE equipment that they require. What's your assessment? 
Well, look, the, there's the the broad point is that it it's not a sick a secret that it's the explicit aim of a right wing government to shrink the state, to to get out of the way, as they like to say. Um, and as I have said many times before, and I wrote several years ago in relation to the Somerset floods. When you deliberately atrophy the state, it cannot be a surprise to find out it's not fit and muscular when you need it. But that is a debate for the months to come rather than now, I think. Um, To me, what's been obvious, and the reason I've been quite aggressive in my criticism, not of Boris Johnson, because I wish him... Very well. I wish him a full recovery. But there's something to me that's going wrong to do with the messaging. And I have the advantage of, you know, keeping an eye on the news of two countries, three countries, actually, because some of my family is in Norway. Um, So I see the messaging going out. And it seems to me that in the UK, right right up until two, three days ago, when Boris Johnson got quite ill, the messaging was just far too casual. It was very mixed in terms of optics. You know, you have Matt Hancock that decides to do a, a, a basically a photo op instead of, in front of the the new Excel Center hospital, um, you know, with people milling around in the background, quite clearly not keeping social distancing. And that to me is a classic example of you know, your optics being wrong. They they haven't been serious enough. They haven't been somber enough. So I'm not surprised that people are not getting this message through. David, um, the government has just temporarily released 4,000 prisoners to stop the spread of COVID-19 inside prisons. You are now, of course, Shadow Justice Secretary. Was this a good decision and and could it open up debate about why we imprisoned so many people in the first place? Well, look, let's be clear. We've got thousands of people in our prisons and we know that they are in close confinement. Lots of our prison estate is very old, in fact, and um, our prisons in Britain are largely overcrowded. Uh, That is a toxic environment in which COVID-19 can spread. And what we don't want is our numbers rising because prisoners are being infected with the disease and infecting not just each other, but also um, the guards and governors that um, have to keep us safe and look after them. So for that reason, it must be right that the government, of course, um, lets out a group of prisoners that are near to release date anyway, Um, prisoners that have committed the sorts of crimes where you can put them on a tag or on licence, and they may well return to prison once COVID-19 has been dealt with but um, uh, uses the prisoner state, obviously, to keep prisoners who are a serious threat. And obviously, prisoners um, who've been convicted on terrorism charges or uh, sex offences would fall into that category. But at least then, those prisoners that are left in the estate um, can be kept at some distance, um, um, being cognizant of social distancing rules and not affect one another. And I would want to support the government in those attempts. Now, it may be, as a result of that, there's a renewed debate, actually, about um, the role of prison in modern society, but that is not for today. Let's move on and think about the future. Specifically, he's here, he's Kia, get used to it. Labour finally, finally, finally chose its new leader on Saturday. And to the surprise of precisely no one, it was clear-eyed, tall-haired, former Director of Public Prosecutions, Keir Starmer, with 56% of the vote. Starmer has been quick to stamp his authority on the party, clearing out the shadow cabinet and bringing in the so-called soft left, who now make up the majority. With the party under new management, where does it all go from here? David, you backed Keir Starmer. What does the scale of his victory mean for the party? 
So look, I think that winning that decisively bodes well for Keir's desire to unite the party um, and for us to come together wherever you sit in the party, recognising that all political parties are broad coalitions of interest. But if we want to win power, we have to come together. And he got a very powerful, strong mandate. And I think the cabinet that he's put together uh, reflects the party and reflects where we need to be, I think, to be seductive and persuasive for the country to put their faith in us uh, at this time. So I was very pleased that he he won so convincingly. And I think there's widespread um, relief and joy really at the names that are coming together to form the sort of new leadership of the Labour Party going forward. So he can build on quite a lot of enthusiasm. He, he's got um, left and right and centre committed, I think, uh, as we step forward. Look, it's a long haul back after losing four times and the worst defeat since 1935. Let's not underestimate the scale of the challenge. The scale of the challenge is massive, but uh, I think there's a lot of faith that he can deliver. Aisha, uh, a very easy question for you here. Do you feel like you've got your party back? <laughs> I was thinking, actually, you're the first person to ask me that question. I've been thinking about the answer to this a lot. And the question is, it's not about me feeling that I've got my party back. And I think the mistake that has been made, particularly over the last five years, is members thinking they own the party and no one faction should feel they own the party. The party exists to win the trust of the voters so we can get into government to do all the good things we want. And I think this, we've got our party back is, you know, the, the wrong way to, to look at it. But I, I was really, I was so happy, but it, I felt liberated. The last five years have been so difficult for so many people in the Labour Party and outside the Labour Party that want to see the Labour Party succeed and they understand its sort of importance to British democracy. And for me, what was so, I think, kind of heartening, I felt really liberated. And I think here is absolutely the the right man for now. He's serious. He's sober. And my God, these times are, are, are that. He has a quiet authority, but I think a very confident authority. He's intellectually accomplished. He's got huge depth. But I think the thing that I feel most um, encouraged by him is he's not a vengeful man. He's not petty. He's not aggressive. And I think he's played this really, really well because we've had, the party has just been, you know, we have been kicking seven shades of shit out of each other for the last five years and everybody is exhausted and ground down by it. So I think even just for the few days he's been in as leader, he's already, I think, civilized the the party. I'm very, very pleased about the any uh, about the shadow cabinet. Um, I think putting a, look as a feminist, there is part of me which is, of course, dismayed that we have not again got a woman leader. And I did vote for Keir, but I think he's put 17 excellent women into the shadow cabinet, including Annalise Dodds, the first ever shadow female chancellor. There has never, ever been in the history of British politics a shadow chancellor or a, a female chancellor in, in Westminster. And I think having a feminist chancellor um, who will put inequality at the heart of an economic settlement is something that which will appeal to a lot of people. I've just done a story today, in fact, for the Evening Standard, where Sophie Walker, who is the ex-leader of the Women's Equality Party, has applied to join the Labour Party because of that alone. Great BME representation as well, including the great uh, David Lamia and, and other sort of um, leading luminaries. But And also the important thing is the NEC. The National Executive Committee is like the board of the Labour Party, and that is a very, very influential body. And he also, in, in quite a surprise, nobody expected this, he's actually now got control of that NEC body, which is very, very important in terms of how he wants to change the party. And the thing that I feel most heartened about is he did this on his own. He didn't do it because of Len McCluskey and Unite. He didn't do it because Momentum backed him. And he didn't do it because Tony Blair backed him or the, the Blairites backed him. He did it by himself. He's not a creature of any faction. And that's why I think 
he can stop this sort of wild factionalism that has that has sprung up. And just on anti-Semitism, he's already met with the Jewish community and, and they've released a statement saying they feel he's done more in four days than the previous leadership did in four years to just try and, and make them feel a little bit more confident that he'll get a grip on the anti-Semitism problem. Um, Alex, we, uh, you know, we've heard a lot from from both David and Aisha on how diverse this um, cabinet is, the shadow cabinet is, both in terms of uh, the, the sort of the, the left to centre spectrum, uh, gender uh, and BAME diversity. Um, it, you know, it, it's clear that it's a bridge um, uh, to, to try and heal uh, different divides across the party. But what with the, the socialist distancing occurring in the shadow cabinet, do you think the the, the banished Corbynites will cause Starmer trouble, uh, maybe in the same way that the Tory Eurosceptics have done within their own party? Will we see a, a Burgonista faction causing him trouble week in, week out? I, I, I don't sense that. I think... I think that the victory has been so emphatic that effectively they will find themselves in the same position that the the centre-left found itself after the second time Corbyn won the the leadership, where it seemed to me that the message was so clear that that they understood that it was time to just be quiet and and let this play out. I mean, there are some there are some surprises in the appointments, some notable absences. I, I, I'd say people like Hilary Benn or Yvette Cooper or Chris Bryant, who have, in my view, acquitted themselves incredibly well on the backbenches. But maybe the thinking is that that their stewardship of relevant committees is just as important to maintain. I don't entirely understand uh, Lisa Nandy as shadow foreign secretary, although I don't. I, I don't think Thornbury's move to DFID is as much of a demotion as people think, because as scientists fairly confidently predict that uh, COVID-19 will flare up in developing countries just as it begins to subside in Europe, I think Thornbury's brief will be one of the most key um, positions, actually, in the shadow cabinet. But you know, looking across the looking across the piece, seven people of colour up from four, um, five openly LGB shadow ministers, uh, broad geographical spread, women up from eleven to seventeen, a broader age spread, but an average age that's down from sixty to fifty. All of it augurs well, in my view. And and what the the best thing about it is, is that I don't sense in any of it that people have been chosen because of the factions they represent. It seems to me to be a cabinet selection that that has gone for quietly competent people that can do the job that that they've been assigned to. And that, I think, is the most encouraging thing. How do you think that maybe in a, in a post-corona world, uh, Starmeromics will, will differ from Corbynomics? Oh, look, I, I, I think that Keir was really clear in his campaign that, that we must thank Jeremy Corbyn for being the politician most responsible for changing the narrative on austerity in our country and um, effectively taking the government on and getting us to a place, in fact, where the government say they're committed to ending austerity, and perhaps part of the response we've seen is as a result of that push. And so I'm not sure that there are the sharp divides here that others would seek to find. What I would say, though, is this. You cannot lock down three quarters of the world for months and months, and not as a result of that, expect a serious damaging economic effect. Um, And it is very likely as a result of this, not only is consumer demand diminished, but people will likely lose their jobs as a result. Businesses will go bust as a result. And for that reason, I think that there will be, once we are through this, Uh, as you would expect, sharp differences on the kind of economy and the kinds of way forward that we need in our country and how we protect the poorest. Because 
there'll also be very difficult decisions about how you stimulate the economy and indeed who should bear the burden as a result of an economy that has retracted. And what we saw in 2008 uh, was frankly not the bankers bearing that burden, it was ordinary people through austerity measures. So so, uh, this story is not solely the story of dealing with the virus, it's also the impact that having had that virus, the economies of the world find their place. I think one last point I would say is as hard as we're going to find it in the UK, and we indeed are finding it, and here in Europe, my God, it, it sends shivers through my spine when I think of people in the developing world. Uh, when I think of how this can spread in the developing world, and I think of the devastation that it can wreak in the developing world. And that's where I think for us, in our political tradition, that internationalist hand and understanding that global connectivity is very, very important indeed. Finally, One of the ironies of Corona is that Britain has felt united for the first time in some years. Nothing brings people together like a real crisis. But the divisions of politics, identity, race, class and ethnicity are still there and bridging them is amongst the most urgent questions facing politicians. David Lammy's new book, Tribes, focuses on the rampant tribalism in British politics and the damage it has caused. David, this is both a memoir and a call to arms. What inspired you to write it? Well, I was inspired, frankly, because I've now been in UK politics for 20 years. Look, I know that I still look like a young Denzel Washington. (laughs) 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 Really, is that long and I have the white hairs to show for it. But what what struck me is that, frankly, following the referendum and a sort of change of the mood in our country, um, people began to question my legitimacy, really, to speak to the country and on behalf of my constituents. When I raised issues around Windrush uh, or Grenfell, they asked, you know, why do you hate Britain? alongside the horrors of the murder of Joe Cox, MPs like me, but others in, you know, like Anna Soubry previously in the Conservative Party have received, you know, daily times death threats. And so it was really in that context, that really horrible, divided, partisan mood that I wanted to explore two things. One, what I decided was the new tribalism that's really real and very present in our country and in our society and the world as a whole. And two, the sense of belonging that is at the heart of that, starting, yes, with my sense of belonging. Why do I say that I'm English and feel English and I explore my um, growing up in the city of Peterborough and my sort of Middle Englandness? you know, the reasons why when I started out as a young Um, minister in Tony Blair's government, I actually really understood the project and felt very connected to a lot of new MBs that had come in in cities like Reading, Slough, Milton Keynes, the sort of new towns. But also my background as as the son of uh, a Windrush generation, my parents from Guyana. And and if you like, moving on from that and my own roots and, and the tribes I'm part of, to think about Britain as a whole, And, you know, I tell lots of stories in this book and how we've become divided, what social media has done to divide us, particularly because I think that that's a real pollutant in the mix. And also the lack of belonging that I think is very real. And just in terms of my own political tradition, we in the Labour Party, um, you know, we've got a very powerful account of the economy and inequality and deprivation and those sorts of issues we tend to have a lot less to say about culture and about nation building and and about our nation as a whole. And my book's probing at those sorts of of issues. Some of the issues, actually, that Lisa Nandy raised in her campaign 
um, uh, to lead the party. It's, it's a modern cliche that, that, you know, Britain is broken. It's often a phrase we hear. But we've seen a, a real resurgence in community spirit recently. What parts do you think genuinely are broken? And which are the strong parts that kind of provide the scaffolding for us to repair the other bits? Well, it's definitely the case that coronavirus has brought out a powerful sense of our common humanity. It can affect us all. Um, pulling together has, because we've all had to self-isolate at home, uh, in a sense, we are slowing down. We are relational with our family. And it's, are, it's a shared experience. Uh, whether, whether you're rich, poor, Jewish, Muslim, we're all in the same it, lockdown. It, it's the ultimate water cooler moment where we are all in this together. But at the same time, it's also brought out, um, and we can see it, a selfishness, people who are flouting the rules, Um, the hoarding of toilet paper and the fights that we've seen on on social media in in our supermarkets. Um, So you see both elements, if you like, of human nature. Um, And of course, many of us are on social media Uh, that's been a blessing and a disguise. On the one hand, you can be on top of the news literally minute by minute. On another hand, there are questions about how good that is for your mental health and your well-being. And worse than that, people have used social media to spread a whole load of hokey from 5G to um, uh, portions that will keep, keep, keep the coronavirus at bay, all sorts of nonsense that, that, that people can pick up and believe as true. So, so in a sense, uh, coronavirus is bringing into sharp relief the very things that I wanted to talk about in my book in this age, if you like, of a new tribalism that's growing. You're the MP for Tottenham. Um, and of course, you're, you're really known for your strong bond with that area. But but you say that in the book you went back, um, as you said, to your your, your sort of uh, hometown of Peterborough, where you spent seven years at school. Um, what do the differences between those two places tell you about the tribal chasm? Or you know, is there is there a, a chasm that exists within a diverse constituency like Tottenham is just as big as, as the difference between those sort of two different towns? I did feel that the divides actually between a seat like mine in London and a place like Peterborough have grown. Going back there, sitting with the parents of friends um, who are anxious about crime in the area. Um, um, Sadly, when we talk about things like county lines and young men from constituencies like mine going into areas like Peterborough to sell very serious drugs like cocaine, that's real in people's lives. They're anxious, yes, and they raise issues around uh, immigration and change in the communities that they're from. They have come to identify Brussels and bureaucrats as the enemy um, and something to be worried about. And I think that that phrase that was used a lot during the referendum, take back control, felt very real to the people that I uh, I spoke to. But at the same time, we share a space. And, you know, I went to a football match and there's something about a kind of, you know, how do we share that space together and come together um, as a nation? And I, you know, a lot of this was perplexing and contradictory. But I came away with the powerful sense that belonging does matter, that something has gone wrong at the sort of neighbourhood and local level in, 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 in Britain. In a way, you can trace this back to decisions like Margaret Thatcher's to scrap the old rates and come up with the poll tax, and then we've got the council tax, and to a, a centralisation, really, of the British state, so that the local, it doesn't, I don't think it feels as vibrant here as it does in sort of federal countries like um, Canada or Germany. And indeed, in part of the book, I I joined Lisa Nandy in Wigan. uh, And that's the sort of area, again, where that sense of local identity is strong, but feels very weak after, after an age of austerity, but also 
centralisation, including under the new Labour government um, in Whitehall. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, Aisha, do you want to come in with any questions for David? Yeah, I think like, I mean, I think the question that I was interested for you from social media is that like, I think that everybody becomes much more amplified on on social media and you found a very very strong voice on social media sometimes do you do you ever like tweet stuff and then think oh I wish I hadn't sort of done that do you find you're angrier on social media than you are in real life well look, what I would say about my social media over the last decade or so is that the, the what I say on social media is very much from the position of representing the people of Tottenham. And I would say also more broadly representing Londoners. And I think if you look back at my tweets, they chime very definitely with the sorts of people I represent. And it's why when I walk the streets of London, people sort of, you know, they're so friendly, they want selfies, they applaud me, they thank me. Thank you for representing my, my, you know, what I think. You know, I I always go to your feet to, you know, just to almost to know what I think. David, are you sure they're not confusing you for Denzel Washington? (laughs) (laughs) You know, if they are, that's great as well. A Uh, young, a young Denzel. A young, a young. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I, I Forrest Whitaker these days. (laughs) 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 But, but, But I'm sort of conscious that it can sometimes be binary. And of course, it's a national medium. So uh, just as I'm hugely popular here in London, I recognise that there will be people, um, if you like, in a different tribe, in a different part of town, a different part of the country, who do not understand why I said what I've said about a particular issue. I might also say that this stuff has come of age in an era where there's a nasty populist nationalism. And of course, someone like me finds myself, surprisingly, having to defend stuff that I thought was over. I didn't think I'd have to sort of challenge things like white supremacy creeping into national governments, because you thought that that stuff was sort of dead and buried. It certainly wasn't something that came up during the Blair Blair period, or even the John Major period. Well, no, and I completely agree. I mean, I feel like we're in a, a slightly parallel universe, where if you call out racism, you then get called a racist yourself, which, which I cannot get my head around. Alex, do you have a quick question? I, I don't have a question. I do have a quick comment because I finished the, my uh, uh, preview copy last night, for which many things. Oh, and, thank you. And, and I just wanted to say that I thought it was very readable and very well written um, because I don't think that said enough about political books. I think there's an, a, a reliance on the subject matter and the concept being interesting, but often they're quite unreadable. And I absolutely could not put this one down. I really, oh, really had a good time so, reading it. That's so kind of you. So <laughs> I David, write- David, for, for, for those um, listeners who haven't got a PDF copy to read, as Alex has done, where, yeah. where do they find it? Where's Now we can't walk into our local Waterstones. Where are people going to pick this book up? You've got to find it online. Of course, Waterstones um, and others have their own online website and you can type tribes into the search, um, get your credit card out and order it and deliver it to your door. Um, so that's how you get it. And, you know, thank God a few people are right. Or you can actually get it as an audio on Audible and you can listen to my dulcet tone. Oh, you read it, uh, do you? Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> If you close, close your eyes and imagine it's Denzel Washington. <laughs> Damn that Denzel can write. His English accent is amazing. <laughs> We've come to the end of the podcast, which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes from politics, or maybe from COVID. We're confining ourselves at home in order to save the world. So what music, TV, books, or even podcasts help take our minds off the great task at hand? Alex, the bars aren't open. So (laughs) what is providing all that entertainment in Mykonos? Uh let me tell you, I'm, I'm an old hand at this because uh, now is day 40 of my isolation because I'm the I'm the carer for an elderly 
mother, so I isolated very early to sort of keep her in a bubble. And uh, my my saving grace has obviously been Netflix. Um, and can I recommend Blood Ride on Netflix, a fantastic Norwegian series that's like a Tales of the Unexpected uh, Twilight Zone type thing. It's like an anthology of little horror stories, and it's been incredibly entertaining. Well, I love a good Netflix recommendation and I hadn't heard of that one. So fantastic. David, when you're not rewriting justice policy for the 21st century, what's your go-to for a bit of self-isolation escapism? Well, we like with the kids to um, sit down and watch something together as a family in the evenings. And the two things that we've enjoyed are um, the English game on Netflix, which is about the birth of football. It's a drama um, um, set in the um, 19th century when football was invented and the tensions between the old Etonians that came up with the game and the new emerging kind of working class northerners that really took the game on and took it further. And that's been fantastic but also Race Around the World on the BBC, which is a gripping watch um, following um, uh, different folk as they compete uh, to get from one end of South America to the other. And I spend most of the time sort of, you know, wishing that I took a different kind of gap year uh, or that I could still sort of backpack across, you know, Peru, Chile, Colombia, Bolivia, Argentina, and hearing my kids sort of talking about, Daddy, what would it be like to do that and stuff and thinking, God, I've got very old. But it's a great, great watch. It sounds like the perfect antidote to not being able to go anywhere is to just uh, imagine if we were all free to roam and and explore South America. Aisha, how about you? How are you escaping? Well, a very weird thing has happened to me. Um, Well, many weird things have happened to me, but this feels like particularly weird. So as a sort of Glaswegian Muslim um, Asian that finds myself in London, I've suddenly just really got into country music. I don't don't understand what's happened to me. But like, I've just really been like listening to a lot of Dolly Parton and a lot of Bonnie Raitt. Like I like love Bonnie Raitt. Who am I? Who am I anymore? And there's this amazing song, Angel from Montgomery. And it's just like, I'm just really like, just loving it. I'm just like watching all these videos and YouTubes of these kind of like 70s sort of, you know, kind of country stars and with their acoustic guitar. I just love it. Absolutely love it. So this is me having my breakdown via country music. There is very little like music to change your mood, mood, I find. It just has such an incredible immediate impact on how you're feeling um, and well, something really weird happened to me yours? as well well uh, yeah so this this odd thing has happened to me as well I've taken up um something that I'm calling juggling um and it's sort of halfway between a wobble and a jog uh, but I do it I do it every day for about 30 minutes um uh, and at this time of year when it's a little bit warmer outside but not too hot as to make you sweat buckets it's just lovely to go out and get a relatively clean lung full of air I mean I live in in very central London and normally you know you've you've got to cope with you know black bogeys and, and the, you know the taste of diesel every time you breathe and at the moment not at all so yeah I've been trying to get out and, and do a joggle that is good. The other thing I should just say is I've done a bit of gardening for the first time. And as I did put on Twitter, I did trim my bush in front of my, my neighbours <laughs> the other day. Was <laughs> listening to country music, no doubt? <laughs> listening to Dolly Parton. <laughs> oh, my God. They're going to put their house in the market. <laughs> You've already been cooking, Aisha. I've seen you been tweeting about food. Oh, my food went down really badly. So I made this real effort to do some cooking. And I was quite proud of it. So I tweeted it. And somebody messaged me back going, listen, I've worked in a lot of prisons. And I have seen better food. Um, oh. <laughs> Like, and people were just like, you're such a bad cook. And I am a not very good cook. So right. I, I've, you, I'm... you and me, Asia, one-to-one Zoom sessions. Can I just put yes. one, one, one other thing that's happened, guys, and we just need a moment, is the other thing that happened in this last week, that, that, and I've been playing loads of his music, is Bill Withers passed away. And I can't tell you how fantastic it's been to listen back-to-back to Bill Withers. 
and those yeah. smooth tunes. I can feel a bunker Spotify playlist coming on. I think this has got to be the new thing. All of our guests are going to have to contribute and we can have some Bill Withers, Dolly Parton mashup going on. If you're starting a playlist, you've got to put Bill Withers' Lean On Me on it. You've got to. We will. We will. And that's the end of this week's bunker. Thanks to our panel. David Lammy, what's next for you on the lockdown journey? What are you up to for the rest of the week? Oh, look, I'm spending loads and loads of time on Zoom and Skype, speaking to the criminal justice sector and participating in the first shadow cabinet meetings. Amazing. Great. Well, we we look forward to hearing all about it. Aisha, what's on the agenda for you? Um, just keeping the Londoner diary going at the moment, which is quite tough because we're normally dedicated to social events and, and people going out. So, um, you know, we're keeping that going and writing quite a few columns and just trying to trying to just keep up with lots of my friends and family. It, the, the one, th- I mean, I, I'm often a bit neglectful about friends and family, but it has made me really want to, you know, connect, feel connected to people, particularly my family in India and, and all across the, the world. So I'm spending, I'm spending a lot of time Skyping and calling people as well. Yeah, my, cabinet, my family's just, just scattered. Just... My family's scattered all around the world. And my niece uh, said yesterday, that for the first time, I feel the distance. Oh, Alex, you, you, you did the Bunker Daily yesterday, Bunker Today, Romaniacs tomorrow. Have you got time for anything else this week uh, beyond your sort of treble duty for us? Masses of cooking in between, obviously. Obviously. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Subscribe to The Bunker on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Bunker underscore pod. Thanks all for listening. See you next week. The Bunker was presented by Naomi Smith and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>